Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We read in verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, we're going to open that up a little bit today. But before we get to that, I want you to travel with me in your mind's eye to Western Turkey, what is today called Western Turkey. You know where Italy is. You think about Europe and, and you know where Italy is and it comes down kind of like a boot, right? Down towards the bottom, there's this island, Sicily, okay? So you, you, you know where we're talking about if we talk about that. So you're down by Sicily and across to the east from that part of Italy is called the Ionian Sea. If you cross the Ionian Sea, guess where you come to? Greece. That's where Greece is, right? Pretty much across from Italy. So keep going. Keep going across Greece eastward. And when you cross Greece eastward, you come to this another sea called the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea has in its southeastern region a small island named Patmos. It's a resort now. But in the time that John wrote this, it was a prison island pretty much. And that's where John was. In this small island known as Patmos in the southeastern region of the Aegean Sea. Now, Patmos was actually closer to Turkey than it was to Greece because it was pretty much across the Aegean Sea. And if you were to just go across the Aegean Sea, that's where you land. You land in Turkey, Western Turkey. So there you are in Western Turkey. Above you is the Black Sea. The Black Sea is on top. And up there you have the Ukraine and there's Georgia, the new country of Georgia, Romania and Russia. And below you, below Turkey, is the Mediterranean Sea. So in that portion, it's got a lot of water around it. you got the Mediterranean Sea and that portion of western Turkey, if you were to travel completely south through the Mediterranean, you'd land pretty much in Egypt, northern Africa, Egypt. If you were to come down into the Mediterranean Sea and head a little further east, still right below Turkey, you'd wind up in Israel. That's where we're talking about. That's where Turkey is. That's where these churches, all seven of them, mentioned in the book of Revelation, are located. Now, back to that Aegean Sea, okay? About 80 to 90 miles inland from that Aegean Sea into western, or western Turkey, you find the valley between two mountains. And this valley between two mountains has a city there about 100 to 110 miles north of the Mediterranean. So you're about 80 to 90 miles in and about 110 miles north of the Mediterranean. And in this valley, there is a city at the foot of Mount Bozdag. This city today is known as Alashir or Alashiz. 
in the Arabic. I hesitate to even tell you what it means, but you hear the word Allah in it. And they call it one of the cities of Allah. Alashir, Alashiz. However, at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, it was Philadelphia. It was the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is gone. Pretty much buried over. And now this Alashiz is on top of it. There's a few small remnants left of what was once Philadelphia, but not very much at all. Now, Philadelphia was established by King Emanus II in about 189 B.C. He named the city Philadelphia, Philadelphias in the Greek, because he loved his brother. He had a real, genuine love for his brother, who became his successor. His name was Achalas II. He succeeded him as king. And so he gave the city the name Philadelphias, brotherly love, because he loved his brother. And this was in about 189 or so, somewhere around there, 189 B.C. And during the New Testament era, Philadelphia was on intersecting trade routes. So again, remember, it's in this valley, and in this valley there were trade routes going both east and west and north and south. And so, it was prosperous. It was a prosperous city. And it should have been a well-populated city. But it wasn't. It wasn't because it had a tendency to have a lot of earthquakes. In fact, in 17 A.D., during the lifetime of our Lord, Philadelphia was destroyed by an earthquake. So people would kind of flee the city and they, I guess they were a little afraid to go back in. So the city was not all that populous at the time of this writing which means several things to us, which we will get to as we look further at this city in a few moments. We've given you the location now. Some of the details about it. Now let's start to unpack Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. I remind you again that this was one of seven churches addressed by our Lord. It's the sixth church mentioned. And I remind you again, as we mentioned last Lord's Day, that these were actual churches. These were real churches in real cities. And remember where Patmos was there in the southern eastern portion of the Aegean Sea? Well, a little bit north and a little bit further east of Patmos was the city of Ephesus. It was the port city. That's where people went. That's why Revelation 2 begins with Ephesus. Because people would come there, they'd come into Ephesus, and then they'd go north. They'd go north to the cities mentioned in the book of Revelation to Smyrna, which was a little bit north of Ephesus. And then up above at the top of western Turkey was Pergamum. Then from there, they'd kind of go down and around. They'd leave Pergamum and they'd go to Thyatira, 
Sardis and they'd come to Philadelphia. Guess what's below Philadelphia? Laodicea. That was the route. That was what they did. That was the preaching route, as it were. So this is how we come to Philadelphia in this city. Today I want to begin by looking at what we could call the Holy One addresses the city of brotherly love. The address begins with these words, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Notice that the address was not to the church at Philadelphia. It was to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church. Now, we've dealt with this with one or two other churches, so I'll just kind of briefly go through it. Who or what is this angel? Who or what is this angel mentioned here as God, our Lord Jesus, addresses this church? You all know what the word is, right? In the Greek, the word is angelos. Sounds pretty much like angel, doesn't it? That's why we call that a transliteration. In other words, it's written in the Greek and we just kind of pretty much take it from the Greek and just kind of transliterate it into English. So we say angels. Angelos, angels, pretty close. It's what we think of when we think of the word angel that we're going to talk about a little bit now. Because we naturally think of those Supernatural beings sent from God. You know, if I say to you, angels, what do you think of? You think of the supernatural beings sent from God. And there's been a whole thing. There was a resurgence a couple of years ago. It's not quite as much today where everybody was talking about angels. Angels this, angels that. And lots of people gave little gifts of angels to people. And nothing wrong with these angels. I don't know that the angels in the Bible actually look anything at all like some of the pictures that people think of. Angels were powerful beings of God. I did a study, it's been a long time ago, shortly after our church began, on angels. Angels, the other created beings. It was a rather lengthy study and a look into who angels were and what angels did and what they were like. They're real. They're very real. They're there. Now, whether they look cute and chubby and shoot arrows at people's hearts, I don't think so. But they're real. They're there. They're biblical. So I'm not going to say anything against these created beings that are sent from God to serve God as Gabriel did. A messenger from God, oh, I gave it away, as Gabriel did, who was sent from God to tell Mary that she was going to bear the holy child, the Messiah, as the angels have seen, even in the New Testament, addressing the shepherds that the Messiah was born. They're real. They're there. And I'm not going to take anything away from them. So, some people might look at this text, though, and say, to the angel of the church and think, well, every church has an angel. You know what? Because of that study that I did, I'm not going to say that's not true either. 
because it's very possible indeed, and it's definitely sure, that God does protect His children, He does protect His people, and He does protect His church. And if He assigns an angel to protect this church, thank God for it. I'm not going to say that it's not true. Some of the things that people say, again, may be exaggerated, but every time I'm saved from an accident, I thank God. And could it have been by the power of one of His angels? Possibly so. Again, when you do the study and you see what they do, some of these things are not an exaggeration. There's a reason that throughout the centuries, the church has believed in angels and understood them to be helpers sent by God. So maybe we have our own angel. Our faith is supernatural. Don't ever forget it. Christianity is supernatural. And there are supernatural beings in even the New Testament. Called angels. Called seraphim. Cherubim. They're there. They're supernatural, They're be, which just means beyond the natural, beyond what we're familiar with, beyond what we know. They exist and they're real. We do not deny that. That is what the Bible teaches. However, what I want to do now is to express to you or to explain to you a little bit more about this reference in Revelation because I do not believe that it is here referring to a supernatural being as we normally think of when we use the term angel. Because the fact of the matter is, the word angelos simply means messenger. That is the definition of the Greek word angelos. It is a messenger or an envoy from God. Even as I mentioned that Gabriel was a messenger to bring the Word of God to Mary. To bring the truth to Mary. They were messengers from God. Declaring the birth of the Messiah to the shepherds out in the fields at night. They were messengers. But not every messenger is a supernatural being. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We have here his cousin John sends emissaries to Jesus to ask Him if He were the uh, Messiah. And Jesus says to them in verse 4, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the Gospel preached to them. John, the emissaries from John come. They say, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? John doesn't go, oh yeah, I'm him. He tells them, look at what's going on. He tells these men to take back to John and tell them that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. These are evidences that the Son of God has come. And the good news, the Gospel, is preached among all men. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And as these were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. Let me ask you this before we go any further. Was John a man? He was a man. Born to Elizabeth in her old age. He was a man. He was not a supernatural being. 
He was not supernatural even in the way Jesus was. As Jesus was the God-man, John the Baptist was a man. So Jesus is speaking about him. And He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist was the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. And as such, he was the messenger. Do you see what it says? Behold, I send my messenger. That word is angelos. John the Baptist was not a supernatural being. John the Baptist was a messenger, a man who brought the Word of God. Now back to Revelation chapter 3. We understand who this angel is as we consider the context in which it was given. What was this angel to do? Now John is to write in a book these things and give them to the churches. And John wrote what Jesus said, and Jesus said to the angel of the church at Philadelphia, write. And then he gives the instructions that will begin to open up next Lord's Day. But what was the angel to do? The angel was the one who was to proclaim to the church what the head of the church That's what we went over last week, that Jesus is the head of the church and He speaks to His church, that the angel was then to take that Word and disseminate it, to give it, to proclaim it to that church. That's what this angel, that's what all of these angels in the seven churches were to do. Take the Word of Jesus, the head of His church, and tell His church what the head of the church says. That's what the angel was supposed to do. Now, we understand, as I said, who this angel is from the context. He was to bring the Word. He was to warn the church. Therefore, most theologians believe that the Word here refers to the messenger to this church who would have been their pastor. This is the word to the pastor or bishop, as it was often called, to the pastor or to the bishop of the church in Philadelphia, right? Now, why do we say that? First of all, you know this to be the case, and it's certainly seen in Scripture, that there is no supernatural being standing up in front of churches telling them what God says. Is there? Look, it's just me. (laughs) I am not a supernatural being. There are no supernatural beings that go around and tell churches what God says. Now, they may guard you. They may protect you. And I believe that they do. I believe that they protect our church. And God supernaturally cares for us. And He may use angels to do that. But they're not teaching you His Word. 
So, an angel with this message to the church, the church would never get it if the angel was a supernatural being. But the word means messenger. And what the angel was to do was to take the word and be a messenger from God to the church with that word of God. That's what the angel here was supposed to do. And since there's no supernatural beings, they think it was a pastor. I believe it was a pastor of the church because that is what a pastor is supposed to do. A pastor is supposed to take the Word of God and bring it, disseminate it, give it, preach it, tell it, teach it to his congregation. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. In that passage that we read a little while ago in Ephesians chapter 4, they take the Word of God, they teach the Word of God to the congregation so the congregation is strengthened. Strengthened not in laughter, strengthened not in entertainment or in music, but strengthened in the Word of God. I can't just give you how-tos and homilies and kit you know, oh, I hope you feel better. Just go out there and be good. I can't do that. My job is to teach you the Word of God. To tell you what God's Word says. That's what a messenger is to do to a church. That is what a pastor is to do to the church. The day that the Apostle John was writing to this church was a difficult day. Think about it. The church was just beginning. Christianity was just beginning to spread. This is new stuff. New theology. New things going on in the world. Christ had not that long ago given His life on the cross and ascended back into heaven. Raised again before men to see. It was not that long ago. It was still new. It was still fresh. It was still exciting. People didn't understand. People didn't have Bibles like you have. And so the day was too, too precious for men to be teaching things wrong in the church. They were to take the Word of God, and tell the churches what God said. This is what a messenger to the church was supposed to do. Look at 2 Timothy for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's the instruction from God given through the Apostle Paul to his young friend, brother in the faith, his son in the faith, Timothy. The wise Apostle Paul who has been serving Jesus for years by this time, has gone through much in his life by this time, writes to Timothy in the second epistle and says to him in verse 1 of chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and in, of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Timothy, you want to know what to do to show people Christ? You want to know what to do to have people saved by God? It is the foolishness of the word preached, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In Romans, he says, 
Faith comes by hearing, and that's the Word of God. Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word. He says to him, be ready in season and out of season. And look what he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. This is a whole sermon for another series, to be sure. Because how seldom is this seen? You can't exhort somebody today. You can't reprove somebody. You just got to love everybody. You don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to upset anybody. How could you dare reprove anybody? How could you tell that woman that she's wrong for living with a man that isn't her husband? How can you do that? You can't do that. You would offend her. You would upset her. And yet... You are to preach the Word, exhort, reprove, rebuke. And then he goes on to speak about instruction. Heaven forbid that we would ever do anything like instruction in a worship service or church. We don't have time for that. We'd have to think. We'd have to read. We'd have to study. But that's what a pastor is supposed to do. To preach the Word. To be ready in season and out of season. To reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And it's in season and out of season no matter what the circumstance. As he says in verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate to themselves Teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn to myths. But you be sober in all things. In your hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Preach the Word. I am restraining myself to even mention some of what he says in here about turning away from sound doctrine turning away their ears and then getting for themselves men who will tickle their ears. Tell me that's not the case! In church after church today! Don't preach the Bible! Tickle our ears! That's all we want. That's all we go to church to get. Don't give us any more. Just make us feel good and we'll be fine. And you'll keep your job. That's church Today, but that's not what you're supposed to do. That's not what an angel to a church is supposed to do. That's not what a messenger to a church is supposed to do. The messenger to a church is supposed to take what God says to the church and tell the church what God says. I mentioned a few moments ago that the day in which John wrote this was a period that was tender and and important in bringing the truth to people because, as we'll see, there was a lot of pagan stuff going on around there and these people needed to hear truth. Well, I say to you, today is the same thing. There's a lack of theology in our day so much so that we're no different than the dark ages before the Reformation when it comes to understanding what the Bible actually teaches. 
We live in a dark theological time and it's too dark and it's too dire and it's too bad and sin is abounding too much for people to just get jokes and stories from the pulpit. The angel of the church was to take the Word from Jesus and bring it to the church. Let's go back to our text and I'll settle down. So, here we have in Revelation, and I'm going to look not so much at Revelation 3.7 now, but we'll back up and look at a couple of these other things. Because listen to what Jesus said to some of these other churches. When you look at some of these other churches, and when you look at what Jesus says to them, He says like in verse 2 of this same chapter, verse 2 of chapter 3, Wake up! Strengthen the things that remain! For I have not found your deeds completed in my sight. And I don't have the time to go through all of them. I may mention a couple of others. But he speaks about Jezebel leading many in their churches. Wickedness abounded in these churches. So here comes Jesus and he says to the angel of the church, I'd have to think that some of these guys had to, had to be sort of like Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5 when he sees the finger of God start writing on the wall. You've been weighed. I think God looks at the hearts of some preachers and He's grieved by it. You've been weighed. You've been numbered. And if you don't change, you're incur my wrath, my judgment. That's what He says to some of these churches. I'll come and I'll take away your candlestick. Stop playing games. As angels to the church, you are to tell the truth. You are to tell what I say. And what you're doing is wrong. Wake up! Wake up. Are they waking up? I haven't seen many waking up lately. Do they read these things? Don't they ever read what God says? I was speaking with one recently. You know, you have the judgment of God in the Bible here and there everywhere. It's like it doesn't exist to some people. They're not even afraid. There's no fear of God today. They don't realize that what they're preaching, they will be held to an account. Oh, can you imagine? I'm not going to mention his name again. But can you imagine what this guy is going to be like when he stands before God? They are the blind guides leading the blinds. The blind guides leading the blind and they'll both fall into a pit. Have mercy. Have mercy. Jesus tells the churches here in the book of Revelation, I have a word to you, pastor, and you tell this to your church. Now, we've looked at the previous five churches already. And I believe our church has benefited greatly from what God had to say to those churches. And I pray that we'll benefit greatly from what He has to say to this church in Philadelphia. So now, let's begin looking at this church as we next turn to the identity, not of the angel, but of the church. 
because he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. So let's take a look at Philadelphia. Let's take a look at this church. I've already told you where it was. Now I want to begin by telling you some about the city. And I'll begin by the importance of the city. The importance of the city of Philadelphia. I mentioned to you that Philadelphia was located in a valley. And I mentioned to you that Philadelphia was located where there were two intersecting roads. This was a little bit more than the churches before. These roads were key roads. One of the roads went north and south through the other cities as well. But this one had a key east-west road. It was the Royal Road. And the Royal Road went east and west. It went from Samaria, which is the second church mentioned in Revelation, and it was on the west coast, on the Aegean Sea, so it was also a port city. Not perhaps as large of a a port city as Ephesus, but it was a port city on the Aegean Sea. And it had a road that went through it, and that road went kind of over through the mountain. The mountain wasn't real, real big. But down into the valley, into Philadelphia. And that road then continued from Philadelphia and it went east into what we call the Middle East. It was a main east-west road and it traveled right through Philadelphia. It was known as the Royal Road because it was a key road, an important road. So it took everything from that coastal city and it went into the what we call the Middle East, right through Philadelphia. So... You think about it, if they're coming from the Aegean Sea, they go through Philadelphia, they bring stuff from Greece, from Italy, from that way. And they take it and they go towards the eastern Turkey, the rest of Turkey. And then if they're coming from there and they're heading towards Greece or towards Italy, they come through Philadelphia and they trade with them coming from that way. It was a huge deal. But they also had the road that came from Pergamum. And those of you who were here a few years ago, Pergamum was the city way up on top of Turkey by near the Black Sea. And there was a way that they were, there was no natural way, but there was a way that they were able to get across through up into what we now call Europe from that portion. So they would come from the north down this road, travel through Pergamum on through the other cities down into Philadelphia, and that city then went south right to the Mediterranean Sea. And so there would be all kinds of trade with people coming from the Mediterranean Sea up and from the European cities down into the Mediterranean Sea where they could then get across even to northern Africa and places like that. That wound up in the coastal city of Atalaya, which is today Antalya. Antalya is a beautiful coastal city. It's a resort city on what is known as the Turkish Riviera. It is now the largest international sea resort in Turkey. Beautiful city. Google Earth it and you'll get to see. But that's where the road went down into the Mediterranean. So both of these roads brought trade from all Directions. Imagine what that meant to Philadelphia in 60 A.D. or 90 A.D. Imagine what that meant 
with all that trade coming through and all of those things coming through, it was a prosperous town, a prosperous place. They had wealth, which also brings all kinds of other sins, some of which we'll address later. I just want you to know this was a wealthy town. However, remember those earthquakes? Even though it was a wealthy town, they didn't get to settle down very well because it was prone to earthquakes. But there's another thing about Philadelphia. Not only did it have those two northwest roads which caused them to prosper, I mentioned to you that they were in this valley. Well, this valley had very fertile land which enabled them to have great pasture land. Philadelphia was noted for having great pastures where they were able to have large cattle ranges and they would roam and they would graze. So they were noted for their cattle and also for their sheep to graze. So they were noted for having a lot of sheep herding. Both of these things were great in the emerging textile industry. They were noted for leather products and they were noted for their wool and the wool products that they could get from their sheep. So Philadelphia was a prosperous town because of its trade and because of what they had to trade. These leather goods and these wool goods, all from their own fertile valley. Also, also, this fertile valley enabled Philadelphia to be noted for growing grapes. They were very popular for grapes. Now, do you think they were popular for their grapes? Or do you think they were popular for what came from those grapes? They were popular for wine. And such as such, because they were so popular for their wine and their agriculture and growing grapes, they were the center for the worship of the pagan god Dionysus, the god of wine and fertility. Now, I mention that because that tells us that in the city was this pagan god worship stuff like there was in the other five cities as well. There always seemed to be in any city in this region pagan god worship. And God, of course, is with a small g. Some of these gods were vile and wicked. Dionysus Made, he was actually, from what I read, the last god added to the Greek gods. He was kind of young. I guess he didn't have enough time to be as wicked as some of the others. But he was the god worshipped there. So there was social conflict against you Christians who won't worship our God. We have seen that in all of the churches. Almost, I believe, without exception. That there's pagan God worship and there's always the God of Rome, the emperor worship, present in these towns. And if you're a Christian, you're not going to bow before that God. That's going to bring trouble to you and your family. I'll just give a quick word of application that we find similar things in our day. If we stand against the flow of what's going on in the world, we're seen as odd, nuts. Why won't you worship our God? Why won't you worship our money? 
Why won't you worship and like what we have in, in material things? Why are you against abortion? Why are you against that? Because we believe in the true God and the living God. Are you willing to take a stand like that? That's what these churches faced. And as we're going to see, Philadelphia did a good job. Philadelphia did take a good stand. Now, again, I mentioned to you that because they were prone to earthquakes, the city had a small population. should have been a big city. But because of the earthquakes, it was a relatively small city, which meant that the church was likely a relatively small church. I like small churches. All this meant, though, that the church was likely rather small, yet even in that, God cared for them. God provided for them. The text tells us that God opened up doors for the church at Philadelphia because they were a faithful church. So, the church in Philadelphia remained a significant church, believe it or not, all the way into the 12th century. And from what I can find, it may well have been the longest lasting of all of the churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. Don't hold me to that. I mean, you know, may, there may have been a remnant in one longer, but this was a significant church used by God according to church history all the way in to almost the time of the Reformation. Now, regarding the establishment of this church, it is uh, actually a little bit uncertain. Because aside from Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 3, the church at Philadelphia is never mentioned in the New Testament. There's no epistle to the church at Philadelphia. Paul never wrote to the church at Philadelphia. I know that you're doing this. He never sent them any instruction, at least not that is uh, in the New Testament. So we do not know much about the church in Philadelphia. We do not know for certain who founded the church in Philadelphia. However, according to some early church writings, and I'm not saying that we can depend on these, but according to some early church writings, it is suggested that the church was planted by the Apostle John. That John planted this church. It is known that John was in this region even before he was on the island, which was actually in the region, he was in this region. So, some feel that John planted this church and that there he ordained a bishop by the name of Demetrius. And Demetrius then may be the angel to whom this address is given. That's not gospel. I have nothing to turn to to prove that. However, some ancient church writings do suggest that that's the case. Let me just mention this again. I happen to be reading in even my study for this message some of the things about the kings and these early men who, who settled this area. I mentioned one of them a little while ago, Emmanus II, who settled the city of Philadelphia. You can get that off Wikipedia. 
That's 200 years before Christ. And they know it. It's certain. But yet, what we read about Christ isn't certain. We can't trust that. That's just written by men. We can't tell for certain if that's true. I say this to you often. I say it again. There is more historical evidence for Jesus and His life and His ministry than there is by far for most of this other stuff that people just take as gospel in history. There's far more evidence for Jesus. Believe it. It's true. He lived. He died. And He rose again on the third day. You can believe it. Back to Philadelphia for a moment. Just to close, we say that we do have record in this uh, recorded in the uh, second century that there was an epistle given to this church by the early church father, Ignatius, who mentions their pastor. He doesn't mention him by name, but he mentions the church at Philadelphia. And it is also known that 12 members of this church suffered martyrdom at about the same time that Polycarp suffered martyrdom. Remember, he was the bishop in Smyrna. We talked about that. There was actual record of Polycarp and he was the uh, bishop there at Smyrna. And we know that he was martyred from church history. And we know that 12 of the members of the church at Philadelphia were martyred at the same time. So we do know that it was a real church. We know a little bit about it. We're not certain of how it began, but we know that it was there. And as we will see, we know from what Jesus says that they were faithful a good church, a church blessed by God because of their faithfulness. And we will see what the Lord had to say to them and from what Jesus had to say to them, what we can learn for our church to be faithful to God, how to be faithful to God, what to do to be faithful to God, and to put that into practice as we live our lives. And as always, as I close, I say, may we be found Faithful to the Word of God. May you be found faithful in your lives, in your homes. And God help us to teach our families this kind of steadfastness for the Word of God. Let's pray.